anyway, so we, we turned up at Malaysia, Shalom, and there's only like a handful of garages. Then behind the garages, there were like these, honestly, there were these metal like huts. And like we was as low as the log could get, like a small one, two, five team. And we we're in these metal huts. Like talk about no air conditioning. Like it was, you know, <laughs> it was, I'd only gone, at the time I was, I think, I was 18. And I'd only, first time I'd been abroad to Spain was when I was 16. So to be in Malaysia and it's like 600 degrees, as you know what it's like there, and you're in a metal hut, you're like, my God, this is rough and ready. Hello, and welcome to Last on the Breaks, the MotoGP podcast with myself, Matt Dunn. And me from Wild, I Maybe remembered there. to say my name. <laughs> exactly. And you were just listening to our guest for today's show. And that was the 2003 World Superbike Champion and esteemed TV pundit and commentator, Neil Hodgson, talking about how it feels to be an 18-year-old in the 125cc World Championship at Malaysia, when only two years earlier, you went on your very first foreign holiday to Spain. As this week, what are we discussing, Fran? We are discussing a fair few different things this week. I think it's a little bit more kind of you take a topic, you run with it. We've ended up somewhere else. I think there's a good few little subjects in there. One of the biggest things we wanted to ask is how Neil has seen the paddock change um, in terms of the riders and everything about it in the last sort of 10, 20 years. And also his transition from being rider to being in the media and how that's kind of changed his perspective. I think there's a good few things on that as well. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, what else? We've got Paddock English as well. That's a good topic. So for the, the, the uh... things that have changed in the last 20, 20 years or so, it's not the standard things. This is not a podcast for those of you hoping we're going to talk about the technical changes and go, Neil, what did you make of when MotoGP changed to 800cc or anything like that? It's yeah, not I'm that kind sorry. of thing. It is about <laughs> the, how MotoGP has developed its own little language or dialect of English almost, the introduction of uh, rider assistance and uh, well, how glamorous some of them are. Uh, and, and apparently some very strong feelings on them as well <laughs> from, from our... Uh... <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, talk about the places that we go uh, as well. And uh, well, a couple of other things, the, the, the best phrase which probably comes out in the podcast, although I don't know whether you just did it in the intro that we... This is take two of the intro, by the way, sorry. Uh, diamonds in the rough, how do you find them these days? It's even possible. Well, it seems as though... It's a bit of a gamble, really. Uh, yeah, but you exactly. have to wait near the end of the episode for that one. Yeah, a little bit on that. I mean, the obvious one that you probably already know we might mention a little bit, Fabio Quartararo. I apologise if you can hear the magpies that have decided to have a fight right outside my window. Good. But uh, there will be, yeah, Fabio Quartararo, Quartararo, how he's changed the game a little bit in terms of looking for talent. Not, and, just, uh, uh, not just the fact that he's awesome on the track, but the other ways which he's changed things up, I suppose. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I think a good few little snippets here and uh, hopefully a good few laughs, especially for those of you who may follow MotoGP on BT Sports coverage. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, lots of personality, lots of little random snippets. And if you are wondering a bit more about who Neil is, because I'm not sure where some of you guys are listening from, do make sure to go and go and look him up because Neil's a real sort of star of the sport. Uh, started thinking about him as a guest really because of uh, the start of lockdown, lots of uh, superbike riders and MotoGP riders, especially 
especially for the English fraternity, started doing the Rob McElnay memories trend on, on Twitter. And Neil's got a fair good few of those as well. And Neil, a real star of World Superbikes and even Grand Prix, as you'll hear later uh, later on. And now, of course, just a really popular TV pundit and whatnot. A couple of things, though, uh, before we do get fully started is couple of swear words here and there in, uh, in the episode made this, this week. you sound like a, uh, a pre-roller coaster safety briefing now. <laughs> yeah. Just a couple of things, guys. Guys, uh, strap in, uh, because uh, there are a few naughty words here and there uh, coming in in the episode. Um, and, and the other thing which I sort of wanted to, to just mention before, uh, without waffling too much in our, in our intros, uh, the sort of things we wanted to ask Neil about was how uh, his perception of the MotoGP paddock and what it's like for maybe people who aren't too used to being in it now myself and Fran relatively inexperienced um, we've got a couple of years under our belt now travelling in our respective positions in, in Dorna but our ideas of what MotoGP is like from the inside is very different to someone who's literally seen it done it got the t-shirt done so many immersive jobs in it uh, so Neil's perspective of that is, is really 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 unique insight yeah definitely agree i think that was a cool little topic there and as always at the end we'll have kenwood quickfire some word association a couple of funny ones there as you may expect um but yeah let us know what you think what's your preconception about MotoGP or what it's like what do you think when you kind of think about going in the paddock maybe you've been in the paddock is that your experience of it i think too? that crow's trying to actually let you know what he thinks to be honest maybe <laughs> it is yeah it's, i don't know what's <laughs> Um, I seem to be under some sort of uh, Stanley Kubrick situation. <laughs> before we uh, before we do get underway, though, we want to just uh, address a little bit of a change that you're going to see come into the podcast in the in the coming weeks. By the way, I'm not going to give too much away, but you'll see up to now we've only just had members of the MotoGP paddock, past and present, as guests on the podcast. We well, have. We've decided to expand the uh, reach of the podcast to uh, to speak to some people in the broader MotoGP community. So there might not be people who are regulars at the races working in there. There might be sports stars from other sports who are just genuine, massive fans of MotoGP, like you and I, and uh, everybody listening. <laughs> I like see... you, you said, like you and I, like we are also massive sports stars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. but, um, but I yes, am famously athletic. <laughs> we we want to get, uh, get a few more perspectives and uh, some, some relatable, we're trying to pick people who've got relatable stories to the MotoGP paddock as well to really give some, some good context. So maybe if we can't hear the context of those stories in MotoGP themselves, hear a version from a different sport instead. Uh, which which should be which should be really good fun. We've got a few people lined up already. Keep my lips tight now uh, of of who they might be just before we actually had a second them. My lips sealed. Yes, that's one. <laughs> um, so yeah, there'll be a little bit change. It won't be like that every single episode, but uh, for now, Neil Hodgson, you and me talking about MotoGP paddock and lots of just nattering and jokes. Really having a good time. Basically, that's all it is. Also, shout out to Neil for wearing the sixty nine shirt. By the way, really yeah, really absolutely. nice that Neil wanted to yeah. wanted to bring you on the the podcast then because one you got your own and I think sort of and they've been doing some great interviews been really good listening but also sort of in the in the lockdown everything little watching Rob Mack memories yeah. sort of had so much nostalgia about old BSB and World Superbike days and everything and I thought we thought we got to get you on at some point um, sure. but today wanted to really chat with you not necessarily about your your career and everything but. More about how the sport's changed over the last like twenty years or so that you've been in it, and mainly sort of things that you've picked up, which you wish you knew at the start of your career, and things which you wish you people coming into the sport now, rider or media, whoever, would know before coming in. 
Um, yeah. So, yeah, for, first things first, like, I, I want to ask a very, very broad question, which we can just have a discussion around, which is <laughs> about how, what's one main thing that you've seen change in the sport since you've been in it, since maybe you left being a rider to turn to the media side? One, one thing that really stands out for you? It, everyone's so much more prepared now. You know, it's like young kids come into the sport as professionals, don't they? You know, yeah. you obviously we see it, don't yeah. we? You know, 16, 17-year-old kids that are the, that, the, the finished article where it's 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, me, you are learning by your mistakes still, bouncing around, doing, you know, making mistakes. Yeah. I think that, that that's the standout now, like, because of the way the sport's evolved and the, like, let's say the junior side of motorcycle racing, it really improved. So by the time you've worked your way through the junior ranks, and if you're good enough and you arrive at Moto3, you know, Grand Prix racing at 16, 17, yeah, you're a polished diamond already, aren't you? You know, you know that it's not about one lap. You've got to work on your race setup. And I just used to be the king of qualifying because <laughs> I just used to go really fast <laughs> on one lap and then had no race setup. But it took me years to sort it out. Just using that as one example. So that's like the standout. It is pretty crazy, isn't it, now, when you see kids, even, in, like, I've done a few commentary sessions for the CV, and even at that age, when they're, like, 12 and 13, some of them, in the European Talent Cup, they're, like, framing themselves in the interview, and it's like, hello, and you're like, what is happening? Like, yeah. it's great in a lot of ways, um, especially when there is so much media and it's so much easier to say something that maybe you didn't mean it in a certain way or like get stressed and go a bit overboard after a race. So if they are more aware, it's good. But it's also like, what is happening? You're like, you should be like, hello, and then go and play with some toys, shouldn't you? One of my favorite experiences of that actually was Nakari in Atarat Pack. And uh, it was a pre-season test in Jerez, I think 2018. And I went to go and do his interview with him in Thai. It was like some greeting for the Thai Grand Prix. And uh, bless him, I, I collared him just outside of his um, out of his lorry and I said, uh, oh, uh, Chip, can we, can we just do a quick interview? And he went, yeah, sure. He then sprinted away. And I was like, what? I turned to the camera and said, what did I say? <laughs> he said, Are you co-? He said, yes, right? And he went, yeah. And then next thing you know, he comes in, his hair is slicked right back and he's got a comb right next to him. He said, sorry, I had to do my hair beforehand. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> okay, and he looked the absolute bee's knees, but it was just so funny. I was, that was this sort of instant thing, like, I've got to look right on, on point and everything for a big interview, which I guess, yeah. well, I mean, Neil, you're always a bit of a, you know, you looked after your looks back in the day with those frosted tips yeah, and everything. Yeah, I was ahead of my time, Matt. <laughs> you know, the hair was always, you know, how is it, how is it looking, is it? The problem now with the hair is, because obviously it's falling out and it's going so thin, I'm now having to, like, get it thick around the sides and, like, I'm doing, I'm call it, call it, we call it the Keith Hewan, you know, and, like, just trying to gather it in the middle and it just looks, looks it looks good, like you've got a full head even if you don't. Well, you said, that, you said I, I think... I feel like you said earlier you couldn't see my uh, my camera, but it's probably a good thing because my hair at the moment is resembling something out of uh, well, the, uh, the Lord of the Rings, to be honest. Than well, it's not normal. Yeah, it is. Now. Yeah, <laughs> it is normal to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, looks and Nakarin Atarat Fever Pat aside, and I'm impressed you can still say that name so correctly and quickly, Matt. Hours. Um, so was I, take... by the way. So was I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously that's something that's changed a lot with like younger riders. What about 
what you've kind of learned from making that transition then we'll go back to like being a rider then and now a little bit more but you had to kind of start a second career in the media obviously you are who you are you've got amazing achievements knowledge and everything else but you started doing a lot of things from scratch again and learning what's that kind of like to have to do that again when you've got to really elite level and then when you leave that you kind of go back to kind of feeling your way through something so new yeah it's hard it really is because right in the beginning I'd done quite a bit of TV bits and bats over the years, did some bits for Eurosport, um, but I was just a pundit, so I was just answering questions. So when I started with BT, it was more of a reporter, pundit, a a bit of everything, and that was was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And it made me feel quite bad then as an ex-rider to think, God, I was hard on some people, some reporters. (laughs) Like Gav, for example, like Gav used to, have to interview me and I'd give him the runaround I'd be I'd be that guy you know like oh yeah I'll be yeah come back in half an hour and I'd be like oh, forget that so it's 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 horrible when riders do that to me now because <laughs> it's annoying isn't it you know you guys know what it's like so but yeah a lot to learn but you know in a way I was extremely lucky because I got in at, at BT year one so we all started together and I was surrounded by experienced people that straight away the whole team sort of clicked anyway so we all got on so everyone helped everybody and like obviously you know what Gavin Emmett's like he's amazing like yeah, Gavin just consummate yeah. professional exactly and you can throw any curveball at him and I've seen it all over the years when you, you know what live TV is like it never goes according to plan but <laughs> I've watched Gav in awe and Uh, what's happened all through my career my tv career so i've been doing it for seven years lots of my friends would say you should present you know you you know you come across well you should present and i'm like you've no idea how hard it is to do it's all i can say is it's like juggling six balls and then occasionally (laughs) somebody will take one out and then put two in Mm. you know and you you watch susie perry's exactly the same The, the pros and i watch them and i think they're at world championship level at, at what they can do with their career and um, with presenting an amateur club race. Still, that's how hard it is. It would take me years to get to their level of being able to juggle six balls. Because still, when someone's talking to me in my ear and I'm interviewing someone, it, it, it still puts me off a little bit. And I watch Gavin and Susie when they're on open talkback. So they've got five voices in the rear whilst they're having a conversation and not, you know, never missing a count. Yeah. Well, you know, like, that does when... blow my mind. That does, okay. especially when you've got someone just chatting at you and yet they're just talking as though there's no one and nothing else in the world. And it's just the show. It's I, I did one British talent cut commentary and it was with the Eurosport guys in my ear. And it's the first time ever. Cause we don't have that. And even on something like that. And I was with Steve day as well. So, like, I'm not very experienced at that kind of stuff at all, but he obviously, perfect captain of the ship. Even then, I was sat there like, I can't even focus. And I didn't have to be on camera. It was just talking. Yeah. <laughs> it blows my mind how you managed to do that. Do you, do you find yourself ever still being like, shut up, or like accidentally well, reacting to stuff? <laughs> it's the accidentally reacting. Uh, <laughs> even last year, I was on the grid, and... Um, 
Kevin Brown, our like my, my boss on site, like the executive producers in my ear, and he, he said he said something like, I can't remember what it was, like, don't go to Cal, he's gone for a wee, right? <laughs> just completely out of the blue, I looked at the camera and went, all right, all right then. <laughs> was like, oh my god actually no one can hear that you know and it's just good on live tv no one spotted it no one even said anything but i just thought oh my god i've just answered to kevin directly down the camera yeah, yeah. and you know like so did you find like there's a there's that thing where um if I, i'm trying to think of the situation but if you're on a, on a call with somebody or you're, you're you're watching some tv but you're also talking to someone on the phone and you've got an ear, one ear on the tv and then you just accidentally repeat exactly what somebody says on the tv to the person on the phone that's yeah. what my perpetual fear of, of having talk back is like because we don't we when whenever do things like motor commentary or whatever we don't have that talk back we have a running order we know we know the score of what happens on the international tv and i can't mm. i don't i think it would take me years to actually fully get around it and i just it seemed impossibly difficult yeah and you, you just and you get out of practice with it so when we get go back to oh, racing in anger you know we'll we'll go back to our normal jobs i'll be rusty again i know i will and one of the things that, that happens sometimes is i'll interview a rider no, no like you know live on the grid i'll ask a question and as they're answering then obviously my producer then would say Right, so after this, go to, um, but then I'm, I can't hear the answer. So there's a few times, and, you know, then I realise they've stopped talking and I'm like, shit, one, I didn't even hear the answer, you know what I mean? And then there's a pause. Yeah. And so that, that's why sometimes it's awkward. But it, I think it, a lot of the times it just feels 10 times worse than it looks. I've, mm. I've had horrible experiences and then watch them back and thought, actually, you can't really tell that much, but yeah, you're on worse critic. You think it's like an absolute nightmare in the middle of it, though, don't you? Yeah. Even like the little things, and it's like, oh god, like I'm gonna get fired. I'm gonna have to emigrate to like Papua New Guinea, and everything's over now. And then you watch it back, and it's just like one tiny blip in the background, yeah. and no one noticed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think you've got to be hard on yourself because that's how you improve. It's no different to racing. If you if you're not hard on yourself, that means you're gonna start be satisfied with finishing tenth every week and go, oh, it's good fun this. You've got to you've got to sort of self-produce, haven't you? And go, I need to be better than that. That was poor, you know. And the, the first year, I, I was very, very rough around the edges. I'm all, thankfully seven years in now. It's I'm more, I've got more brain. I can use more my my capacity of my brain. Where I'm not like, oh god, oh oh. And I I spoke to Simon Cray for a lot when he first started because I could see exactly what he was going through in his first year, mm. thrown in the deep end, and it was so hard and. Everyone just thinks you're going to be a pro at it straight away. And Simon's just, well, Simon's great, isn't he? As you know better than anyone. But that first year was hard for him because you're thrown in the water and you, you, you literally you sink or swim. But the problem is you sink or swim on live TV. Yeah, you don't, you don't get that time to warm up or anything like that, do you, really? It's just like, dive in, straight go. Um, what did I ask you at that point about when you first came back to, to MotoGP? Because obviously your spell riding in MotoGP wasn't quite what I suppose you would have hoped it would have been. But what was your impression when you came back to MotoGP with BT Sport? Uh, the people in the paddock, the atmosphere, how everything had changed? Because I guess you hadn't, prior to that period, since you were in it, you hadn't actually spent that much time in the MotoGP paddock. No, I hadn't been at, at all, really. So from 2004, so then the first years, yeah, 10 years, exactly 10 years. Mm. I was shocked. Two things stood out, really. One, the level of professionalism, it, it had gone up another, like, 10 gears, you know, I'm like, wow, you know, how impressive it is. That was a shock. But also the, the other big shock was 
I don't want this to, to contradict myself, but how friendly everybody was. I mm-hmm. was still open and it was the paddock and obviously there's a time when people are really stressed and they can be off, you know, but you sort of, we, you know, you sense when it's the right time, but in general, how just welcoming everybody was. And it was, it was, it was nice to be back because I was more of a superbike guy. I mean, in my early career, I did one, two, five Grand Prix for a couple of years and I did a season under 500. So I'd spent time in that, in that paddock, but um, I don't know. It, it, it was, it was much warmer than I thought it would be. Because from the outside, when you're when you're looking in, you think, "Oh, I bet it's really sterile and people aren't friendly and mm. they're all they're all superstars." The only superstars, and you, I know you'll appreciate this as well, is you. <laughs> Apart from me and Gav, <laughs> the only superstars are the um, it's the entourage. The riders are all right. It's the the idiot sort of you know you know what it's like. Some of the riders have got a big old entourage and they walk around like. Like they own the paddock and they've got big eagles. I've no time for them. That, that sort of annoys me a little bit. But mm. apart from that, you know, the team managers and riders and team owners are great. I, I'd say that's true as well from being a fan and then like looking in when you see the paddock from a distance, like from the grandstand, it's like, oh my God, this crazy, like locked little environment of everything. And you do expect it to be like sterile and so professional to a fault where it's not about getting stuff done well it's about posing and doing this and that but when you do actually get behind the scenes yeah it's really different isn't it as well i came from world sbk for like i think five or six months i was there with dawna and a few people are like oh you know moto gp it's a bit different and i think the only difference really in my experience is just media debriefs are a bit more kind of like it's this time and if you don't come at this time you can go home no what, what you said about um is that's actually something which i wrote down because i just before this i was like oh, it would be actually quite useful to think about some things which i didn't know about MotoGP before i actually joined and started working in it and that was one of the things you you think it's like because it is obviously the comparison to formula one you think it's super posy everybody's in there in their suits and they're all their gucci and this and that and they're probably too good for you <laughs> But it's not as polished and as posy as you would think at all, and everyone's very welcoming. Mm. But on that, something else which which uh, we've had, a, I think Fran and I have had a discussion about it before, is how you everyone's very welcoming to an extent, but you only really feel part of sort of truly welcomed by everybody else when you go to a real far away race mm. in uh, like uh, your Argentina, America, or, or Sepang, somewhere which yeah. you know you you normal inadvertently like European lot wouldn't go to and that's when you really start to see a difference in how people sort of address you and actually even trying to it's easier to actually then go to debrief with some riders because their press officers are more friendly with you do you know what I mean yeah 100% I think what happens on the on the flyaways is everyone's guards down a little bit more the paddocks aren't as busy of it you know you can no. get around so you see riders because of that and they don't have the big motorhomes to sort of hide in so I, I much prefer the flyaways for the um, access to the riders. It's so easy then, isn't it? You can really get to yeah. get to chat to them casually. And they, you know, it's like they're sort of bored as well. You know, it's a long weekend. There's a lot of hanging around for, for the riders as well. So they're always happy to have a chat, aren't they? That's what I found anyway. Yeah, definitely. I'd say that. And I think Matt mentioned it as though it's almost like when you go on that first school trip together. 
and it yeah. kind of just like creates some sort of bond like not like you've been through some trauma together but whenever you do something like that it is kind of strange for a lot of people this idea of this huge load of people who live in completely different places meet up like every two weeks for four days live in each other's pockets and then go home yeah. Uh, so I guess yeah. I, I mean, I really like the flyways as well for the places that we go and for that kind of just I don't know. It feels like its own little world then, but in a good way. Yeah, I'm sick of Argentina though. They could get rid of that round. Oh, that, <laughs> not a fan. No, no. You know, the first year when we went up to uh, Termas, it was like what well, I said, quaint sort of little village. You know, it's like going back thirty years. And like now it's like, cause it is a bit of a pain to get to, isn't it? And I don't know, the food's pretty rubbish there, even though like you'd normally think, uh, you'd normally think the food in Argentina would be amazing. So yeah, that's one they could get rid of. There's, I but feel there's not like many I don't like. You need to try the little empanadas in the square. This is the secret to Argentina, is, it? is the right. guys with the little ovens in the square in Termas, they're yeah. like 20p each. Oh, well, that appeals to me. Yeah, they're not bad, I've got to say. I mean, it was, it was an ultra-cheap dinner. I mean, it's a bit too much pastry, and they're not quite Cornish pasties, but they're yeah, still pretty good. Yeah, maybe not an everyday situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, my problem is, and I, I'm such a weirdo, I shouldn't think like this, but I like, I'll walk around that square, and then I'll like, look at them cooking the empanadas, and I think my girlfriend's in the background just looking at me going like... What are you saying? She, she thinks I'm such a loser. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I look at these, like, you know, little stands... And it's like when you're in Termas anyway, it's, it's rough around the edges, isn't it? You know, and you look, I'm like, they haven't cleaned that. They haven't, they haven't washed their hands for weeks because it, it's, it's filthy, isn't it? Because it is. It's proper mm. rough and ready. And you're like, there's no freezer or cooler box. And they clean out that chicken. That's going to give me, I'm going to be ill. Yeah, well, well, I shouldn't think like that, but. No, but to be fair, I, I suppose you are probably thinking like that now because uh, I mean, when everybody goes back, it's going to be rubber gloves everywhere and, and masks and all that, isn't it? Really, <laughs> even but, um, more, yeah. Yeah, you might might be might be more conscious about it now, but yeah, no, I can I can see what you mean, and it is a bit rough around the edges. The one of the images which I couldn't get out of my head is how many people in Argentina seem to have these amazing 2017 to 2019 superbikes, and they're riding right. around on them in shorts, t-shirts, and flip-flops, right. no helmets, and they're giving it the beans as well. They are nuts. Well, it's, it's, I always say, whenever you see anybody on a big bike or any motorcycle in a pair of shorts and flip-flops, I always go, spot the person who's never crashed a motorcycle. Mm. You know what I mean? Because it's that one little crash, you will never, ever ride a bike like that again because you know, yeah. because you know how... It, and it's nothing of a crash you need. A little, you, a little, someone pulls out on you, you go down and you've skinned your leg like... Oh, don't bear thinking about does it? It really doesn't. Okay, for, for the interest of impartiality, I'm going to give a quick ode to Termas de Rio Hondo because I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Other than the uh, yeah that flight with the connection, we normally do Barcelona, Madrid, 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 Buenos Aires, and then you got to get to Termas. But like you said, it does feel a little bit like. It's so crazy and it's such a small town and it gets completely taken over. It does feel like a kind of obviously not real nostalgia for me quite, but it feels quite nostalgic. Like it's yeah. something that you get in a Nick Harris blog kind yeah. of vibe. How many times have <laughs> so you been? I definitely love that. I think, have I been three or twice? I've, or I've been twice. Maybe twice then. Because I don't think I've been when you weren't there. 
So you've not been enough. Yeah. I was good for, I was good for two done. visits. <laughs> no, no, I can, I can understand that, the, especially the, the flights there as well. I mean, that's, that's why I, like, I want to ask you these things, because we have, we have our, for, for example, for us, we have a very fresh-faced view of, of a lot of things, very starry-eyed view of, of the paddock and everything still, but someone who's been there, I mean... Uh, that's on the Argentina note is what I want to ask you we view that as how it would have been back in the 90s racing whether it be a World Superbike race or a Grand Prix yeah. is that is the vibe like that or is it is still, that still no no I mean uh, Termas is a it's a bit of a unique place and racing wasn't like that you know what I mean even mm. in the 90s in the early 90s when I was in 93 I started Grand Prix racing one two five Grand Prix racing the only place that felt a bit like that was when we went to Malaysia because the Shah Alarm circuit, which was the old circuit they used to race on, was really rough around the edges. And I went there, like it was me and my dad went there because we, we, we like, I won the British Championship the year before. So I was like a young kid and my dad's like, well, we've just got to do no point in staying defending it. You've got to try and, you know, ride against better people. Let's go Grand Prix racing. You could more then. It was easier to do that. Um, but it took a lot of effort and anyway so we, we turned up at Malaysia Shalom and there's only like a handful of garages then behind the garages there were like these honestly there were these metal like huts and like we was as low as the log could get like a small 125 team and we're in these metal huts like talk about no air conditioning like it was <laughs> you know it was I'd only gone at the time I was I think I was 18 and I'd only first time i've been abroad to spain was when i was 16 so to be in malaysia and it's like 600 degrees as you know what it's like there and you're in a metal hut you're like my god this is rough and ready you know so. it is it's pretty crazy to think about even at that time like i think the first time i went abroad was like mid 90s and i'm 31 now and even then like going to spain was like oh my god this is amazing i'm mm. basically indiana jones um, and then, but then you're like, when you're 18, you just like, okay, you and your dad go to Malaysia and race. Yeah. It must have been quite a crazy experience having um, come from the British Championship. Uh, it was like, like it's funny. I've got, a, I've got a picture on the wall saying "Dream Big," and I just, as you said that, I looked over at it, and it, weirdly, I just thought, do you know what? It was a dream. It was yeah. a dream because, because I was a builder. So I left school, no qualifications, and I was a builder. And I did that for three years. But in my last year, I won the British Championship. So then, right, we're gonna have to, you're going to have to stop being a builder, thank God. Um, <laughs> uh, and so we went racing, went Grand Prix racing. But I couldn't believe. All I wanted to do was ride my bike, obviously. But then as soon as I'd finish, I'd have a, like, not even a five-minute debrief. Because I didn't really know what I was talking about. So I'd go, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm still learning the track, Dad. And then I just wanted to go out and watch the 500s because it was Schwantz and Rainy and, you know, doing. And, and I was like out on the surface road, like, or hanging <laughs> around the paddock, staring at my heroes and just waiting outside the back of their garage. And then they come out and I go, you right, mate? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, just just trying to get them to look at me and just, you know. <laughs> Nothing's so, changed. Yeah. <laughs> so, Brutal. Just, it's so strange, you know, when looking back, you think, how lucky was I, you know, yeah. at 18, 19 years old to be able to do that? So it is you know, pretty crazy, memories. isn't it? Yeah. Do you feel like sometimes you have that kind of effect on a few people now? Do you see it in reverse with some of the younger guys you interview and they're like, oh, 
Not really. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. But um, obviously, it doesn't bother me. It's just funny. <laughs> like occasionally, when someone, it was the saying this to. I might even be my girlfriend, weirdly. We were talking about something. We were talking about retirement. And I said, one of the weird things about when you retire from racing, Neil McKenzie told me, actually, that the the year I retired in 2010. And he said, honestly, Neil, it's not as bad as you think. And he said, you know, the funny thing is, he said, people will seem to only remember your good races. People just want to come up to you. And he said, it's quite weird because in your, you look at a, your career, I had 20 years, you know, and out of that 20 years, maybe 10 were good, 10 were average. But people just want to talk about the really good parts of your career. So much so that, funnily enough, people <laughs> always go up to me and say, oh, yeah, you, you know, I've got a great career, two-time world champion. And you're like, well, one time, you know, but it, it's <laughs> like, I think people think I was better than I was. Weirdly. So that's it's just funny, isn't it? That, that is pretty I, funny. Well, no, it's like everyone. I mean, you're the, probably the only one who really remembers all the bad days and stuff, don't you? Yeah, I mean, exactly. For personally, exactly. I remember waiting to get Neil Hodgson's autograph, and I think you were in AMA, but you went and visited a BSB race. Uh, so I can't remember what year it was, <laughs> but I was still young enough that when you when uh, you went two years in a row to this same BSB race and did an autograph session. And I went first year, got your autograph, and I came back next year, and I said, "Hi, Neil." And he went, "Oh, I remember you." And I was so chuffed for the rest of that. I mean, you, you probably were lying, but you... <laughs> no, Matt, you've got a distinctive look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe yeah, uh, it's fair enough. But um, but yeah, it, no, I can I can appreciate that. And I, it made me think you saying about how you were going around the service roads watching the other riders. Do you think some of the modern Motor Three riders, Motor Two riders? do that enough in terms of appreciating where they are exactly? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, obviously, like I said earlier, they're polished, they're professional. Mm. But you can imagine, you know, the 16-year-olds come in, that's exactly what they'll be doing after they've done their debrief. It won't be a five-minute debrief. They'll have a more, you know, probably an hour's debrief. But then they'll be out watching Marquez, won't they? Mm. 100% they will be. And they need to because if they want to try and... If we want some people, you know, we need someone to have a go at trying to beat Mark Marquez, don't we? You know, so, <laughs> and it's going to come from the younger kids, as we've seen with uh, Quattararo, you know. It's funny because Quattararo, when he won the second junior world championship, whatever year that was, it could have been about 2015. I, I don't know what year. I remember. I think it was, wasn't it? I think it was 14. Was it 14? Ah, yeah. 14, it, it makes sense, I'll, I think. I'll Google. 15 with I'll his, Google. was his first uh, Grand Prix year, yeah. Google it, but we were, I remember at BT we were sat around talking and, and having one of those typical higher car chats that we've had a million of them, you know, it's like, <laughs> who's going who's gonna, who's gonna to take it to Marquez? And, you've got, and I'm like, maybe that Quattararo, I mean, you know, he's so young, but he's clearly so talented to win these two junior world championships at 14, 13, 14 yeah. years old. Yeah. So when when I look at a... um, when I look at Quattararo though, some another point which I I wish I wrote down thinking of how something which I've realised since working in it is how lot like time passes really quickly. Twenty fifteen to now feels like no time at all, but it's still four or five years. It takes a really long time, even for the best up and coming riders, to actually get to the top of it. It takes yeah. such a long time, no matter how good they are, because. You know, Quattrari, he still won that back in 2014, 2050, which was it, Fran? 2014, can I confirm? It, yeah. It takes a long time for them to develop to, to that point. But it seems like, even when your career, it took even longer. Like, not just for you for specific, specifically, but like in general. <laughs> oh, 
in, in my career, I was so quick to progress. Yeah. It was, and, and I was like one of the very few because you couldn't start road racing until you were 16. That was, right, yeah. so the first time you literally, first time I put a set of leathers on, I was 16. So to get in the Grand Prix, well, to be, I put leathers on at 16 in 1919. In 1995, I was racing 500 GP, so Mott GP. That was almost unheard of. It was really quick. Not because I was super talented. Obviously, I worked hard and I could ride a bike. I'm not saying I couldn't. But um, a lot of riders around that time, it would take a lot longer. You know, it took more like 10 years to yeah, get into, exactly. the, into the main class. But for you, it was um, it was it was super interesting how your uh, well, we, well, let's talk a little bit about actually that that sort of career because something that I always found interesting because growing because I was born in nineteen ninety four. Sorry to say that, but you were one of when I was growing up and BSB <laughs> guys were my heroes. Like you and Chris Walker in in the year two thousand. Obviously, that's one of the main years that sticks out in my memory. And then you winning World Superbikes in two thousand and three. It wasn't until about the late uh, first, like maybe two thousand two thousand and nine. And then when you came back to BSB briefly in 2010 before you retired, that I even realised you had done all that stuff in the 90s as well. I thought, yeah. I thought you were just built up, built up until you won the BSB crown. I didn't realise you did all that before. I mean, did you feel ready when you went into that time? Did I feel ready? Yeah. No, you... not at all. It was not, <laughs> not even slightly. Like in 94, sorry, 93, when I, so I, the year before 92, I won the 125 British Championship. And then I was in Grand Prix racing, and it was all way too much for me. I wasn't even slightly, honestly, I wasn't even slightly ready at all. <laughs> and then I had a good, like a, a, quite a good year, but not if you look at when you're watching young, talented kids come up now. If they're not in the top ten, we're all going, and I'm one of them going, I's no good, it's no good. <laughs> you know, which I shouldn't do, but I do. Um, and then the next year wasn't great. And then it was like, right, well, you're too big. And I put on way too much weight because I'd started to grow, and it's like, well, it was like it's like we've got a calculator out. Let's we've got a, we've got a, we've got a, um, a puzzle to solve. You're too big for one two five. Ah, oh, let's get on a five hundred. Yeah. Oh shit, that's going to be hard. <laughs> you know, and you're in the deep end. And I t- turn up in Australia for the first Grand Prix of the year at Eastern Creek, and with God knows how many laps to go, there must have been at least five. I saw a blue flag and I thought, oh, shit, I'm going to get lapped. <laughs> I'm going down the, it's a really long straight at Eastern Creek and I'm flat out on my 500 blinking, like, wait, shit, this stuff obviously felt fast. And Mick Doohan came past me, pulled the stickers off my bike, it was that close, tipped into turn one, which is a ridiculously fast corner. It's like, it's very, it's a left-hander, but it's similar to Phillip Island. Obviously, Phillip Island's a right-hander, but it's a fast, scary turn one. And he just tipped it into there, and I was behind him. And I could smell, he lit it up, so I could see his rear tire sliding. And I could smell the rubber, and I'm just like, just like this going, fuck. <laughs> what? And I remember thinking to myself, genuinely, it was like a, such a rare moment. I remember thinking, God, I, would n- I will never be able to do that. Mm. And I was right. <laughs> 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 but it, but it, it, obviously, it, mighty Mick at that point was just, he could walk on water and he could float this motorcycle around. Mm. Incredible. It is pretty cool. And it's crazy, yeah, just thinking that now, just like, well, I'm too big, so I've got to change. It's like just the physics of it is the deciding mm. factor. Like There are a couple of guys like Scott Redding, Jonas Folger, who moved up 
maybe not early, early, but certainly decided to move up because they were getting pretty tall. But you don't really hear of that now, do you? Like, MotoGP is never about that kind of side of it or the physics of it. It's all about, oh, who can which factory pluck from the hype factory immediately? Yeah. It's like, it seems a big rush at the moment to sign people up. Do you th- what do you think about that and this kind of thing we're seeing at the moment with just oh, no, we have to find someone to beat Marquez. We have to grab him now. Yeah. What do you think about that kind of culture it's kind of becoming? Yeah. I mean, Quattararo spoiled it for everybody, for, <laughs> for for the older riders, because, you know, obviously when he got signed last year, I was one of them. I don't know what your thoughts were. I, I like Fabio. I wanted him to do well, but I didn't think he would. You know, I didn't think he would threaten the top 10 to be honest you know and I certainly didn't think he'd threaten the top 5 let alone get all those pole positions nearly win I don't know how many races but because of that now people are looking up as we know going the team managers are going look if we stick with Dovi if we stick with Carl if we stick with any of the riders above 25 they've had it long enough racing on tarmac they must have plateaued, so they're not going to all of, all of a sudden find a lot of speed, which isn't necessarily right. Riders can still, you know, click with a new team, new bike, new crew chief, or whatever, and find and get some inner confidence by results. So mm. I don't necessarily believe that, but I think that's what the team manager ma- managers are thinking. So Quattro gets signed and obviously does amazing things. And now everyone's looking, right, who's the next guy? You know, is it Jorge Martin? Who's the next young kid? That's yeah. got all the talent. And without trying, you... to, um, trying to quote your, your podcast and your own interviews too much to like <laughs> generate another conversation, though, I remember, I think it was the Scott Redding podcast you were talking to him about and you asked him, is there a way back for you into GP? And he mentioned about, and I, and I remember it briefly as well, when Pramac uh, signed Peko Bainaya. When they signed him, when they did, long before he was actually the world champion in Moto2, because they said, you sign him now, he's this amount of money. You sign him you sign him when he's Moto2 world champion, when everyone else is going to want him, he's three times that. And so it's yeah. almost like there's that, that, it's not just, we need the young guns to train him up to beat Marcus, it's also that, well, the economic side of it as well, where it's, well, we can't keep affording these guys who are 25, 26 years old, who could still develop to beat Marquez. You know, it's a lot cheaper to have the young guys and build them up again. Yeah, yeah. And it's tricky, though, when you look at the... like. If I look at the guys in Mort 3 from last year, or obviously this year, the start of the year, who's going to beat Marquez? You know yeah. what I mean? But that said, if I, I remember Marquez in his very first year. God, he was small. <laughs> and that, that photo from Donington and that yeah. podium with like Scott uh, and Mark oh. is amazing. <laughs> Bizarre, isn't it? But I remember thinking, oh, he's good. But I, I didn't think he was Valentino Rossi good. Hmm. So... I'd love to know which which is the diamond in the rough in that pack at the moment. There's a couple of that uh, Sergio Garcia or someone like that. Like I'm trying to think of the really the young guys. So is it going to be one of them that is just going to go next level, next level, next level, and then it's yeah. like wow, this you know. He he really impressed me in the Sev Sergio Garcia mm. because I think he had he had a big crash in Valencia, broke his leg, was out for a while. And then the next time he came back was Valencia. And I think he either certainly won one or won both. Just like straight back, like, yeah. hi, I'm back, won it. Yeah. And he is, and he's not, he doesn't give that, like, kind of, there's no swagger or confidence no. outwardly. But to just have that when you're that age, mm. to just come back and be like, right, 
straight back on it was pretty yeah. impressive. But yeah, but then in the press conference, it's like literally sat there like this <laughs> and did the one when he won in Valencia and he like could barely even look at me never mind around the room um, so like, things like that sometimes just, just shy yeah just so yeah. shy yeah. and obviously a bit a bit nervous with the English as well yeah. um, but it's like no you've achieved something pretty impressive today like come on give it mm. give it some uh, give it some posture but yeah it is strange isn't it especially like you said with Fabio there's obviously the CV amazing and then this kind of mess of some injuries some other issues dipped in confidence and then that win in barcelona that's like ah this mm. is the guy that was supposed to arrive yes. straight away in uh, in 2015 but um but yeah i don't know I, if I you don't know who the diamonds are how are we meant to tell yeah, I, f- I feel with Fabio though that he he's not just he's created that new generation of like you said the how everyone's going to look at the young riders again. But he almost taught taught the rule book in a way because he came into the Grand Prix with so much hype. First five races before he got injured, he did do super super well, and everyone thought, mm. okay, we're on track here. This is what's going to happen. And then just spent the next three years in the wilderness before he got yeah. that win. But then even when they then signed him up to MotoGP, everyone was he wasn't hyped again and saying, hey, this is it. Quattro is coming to MotoGP. He's going to be amazing. Mm. Actually, a lot of people are thinking, "What are they doing?" He's he's well too soon, yeah. but then he does get in there, and he's 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 amazing. And and actually, there isn't anybody else on that even the same trajectory as that. It's not as if he's created a new rule. Yeah, that's 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 my perspective, anyways. Yeah, but the thing, what he's done though, I think, when I say he's made it hard for the for all the other riders that are in Motor GP, is because he wasn't absolutely stunning in Moto3. He wasn't absolutely stunning in Moto2. We saw his talent, like you say, winning in Barcelona, then he won another one, but then got it taken off him. Uh, Japan, wasn't it? Japan, yeah. Yeah. But but there were sevens, eights, twelves, fifths, thirds. You know what I mean? Mm. So it makes you then think, as a team manager, you're looking at um, Baldessari's, Bastianini's, Navarro's, although, you know, like, is one of those guys going to you know, Remy Gardner, are you, are you going to give one of these guys more power and all of a sudden they just go, oh yeah, that's what I needed and be like a top five MotoGP rider. Yeah. I, I talk about, you won't listen to any of my commentary, but I always talk about riders stock value. It's like one of my sayings. Yeah. And it's funny, you go like, literally at the start of the year, Quattararo had signed for, I don't know what his fee was by the way, I don't know, but I manage Alex Lowe's, so I know roughly going rates and all that lot. If he if he signed and actually got paid, he did well. And if he got two hundred thousand euros, he did really well. And it was funny as the year went on, I'd go, "My God, Quattro's stock value has gone up. He, you know, he, mm. he's worth five hundred grand now. He's worth about a million. He's probably worth about two million. He's probably worth five now. He could be worth <laughs> that. And literally, imagine you've started the, the season. His stock value in MotoGP was zero, mm. and by the end of yeah. it. I don't know what he will have signed with Yamaha, but it could be seven or eight million. And yeah, it's crazy how quick it changes, isn't yeah. it? What about being his manager, though? I laughed about that. Cause, oh. uh, what's, what's his manager called? I've got his name. Eric. Right. He, he used to manage uh, Rand, Randy Dupunier. And he was, uh, Randy Dupunier was Alex Lowe's teammate one year. So I got to know Randy and Eric, and the great guy, you know, really good. Cut me a nicer chap. And I'm so pleased for him because I'm thinking, Fair plays taken on Quattararo, you know, like last year, Illy got paid off him, like a, a small amount. Mm. 
it's quite easy to work out what 10% to 10 million is. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and you know what? During the year, I'll just, just to make you laugh. This might just be me being. I'm so I'm a bit. I'm a bit of a cynical weasel. But I'd like. I'd look, I'd look at Eric and I think. I think he's got some new clothes. Really? <laughs> it looks smarter as the year went on. Do you know? Do you know? In that situation, who I'm also most pleased for as well, Tom, Fabio's Tom. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I mean, no one knows his second name. I think his second name's Mobot or something like that, isn't it? But um, Fabio's Tom is what everyone calls him. His personal assistant, and he's literally been there since the very start. He is, yeah. apart from maybe Fabio's family, he is like the one person who has completely believed in him since the beginning. And to see yeah. that pay off, and to see them doing things like going to Formula One, they're like both dressing in like Gucci stuff, which clearly Fabio can afford now, driving around in a McLaren car, which clearly McLaren Barcelona have lent them for a while. It's and seeing them enjoy that is so so yeah. great to see. I, I just I absolutely love it. We all that, love the stories, don't we? When it pays off for like the team rather than the person who swoops in when you're on top and is like, oh yeah, we're best friends now. Mm. It's yeah, exactly. it's. It's nice and wholesome, I think. Yeah, it's genuine then. You've got a genuine <laughs> exactly. friendship. Like, oh, all of a sudden, look who's here. He's got a lot of new mates. You know, mm-hmm. it's nice. Um, that's one of the things that's changed as well. No one had riding assistants. <laughs> Do you know what? You had a girlfriend or you did it yourself. Or, or wife. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, somebody, you know, would carry your water bottle or your helmet. But I love... <laughs> it's what, it is one of my favourite subjects is the riding assistants. Because... If you are a rider assistant, like literally just to be assistant, not like a genuinely close friend, like um, the lad you're just talking about. Like, let's just say, like, obviously, use Valentino as a perfect example. If you're at Ross's level, obviously, you chose his man. I understand, obviously, they've been there since day one. But you go, well, what does a rider assistant do? And you go, well, he'll he'll, uh, make sure he's got his drink bottle and uh, towel and sort his helmet out. But when you're at the absolute top, there is a helmet guy anyway. <laughs> so, so the rider takes his helmet off, gives it to his rider assistant, who then's job is to pass it to the helmet guy who's sat next to him. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah, Bloody hell. How much does your assistant get paid? Oh, well, you pay him about 100 grand a year. Bloody hell, can I do that job? <laughs> I, could, I could put someone's gloves on for them and, you know, like, pass me a helmet. Oh, suck that out. You know, it's just... <laughs> It is sometimes it is pretty funny watching the logistics of that, and like you say, um, like the helmet guys do go and sort that out for themselves as well. Like we know quite well the guy who does it at the moment for KYT and Swomi, and he goes and sorts that. Doesn't need another individual in the middle really sometimes, but (laughs) my my cynical side would brand it, and this is not like what I would actually call it, but the cynical part of me would say the riders almost create a middleman so they can have like an unconditional friend at their side during the races is that sort of way do you know what I mean because that's it yeah. you've created a middleman to go and take your, your helmet out and sort your leathers and this and that but a lot of the rider sort of helpers just seem like a friendly face there to be honest yeah yeah definitely people's girlfriends did that though that's mm. in, in my all through my career that's how it worked with everybody mm. you know that they, they'd sort it out the, the other one that I see and I won't name names. So there's a few that does make me laugh. There's some <laughs> funny ones. Bear in mind, I know what a few of these people get paid. There's what one guy got paid <laughs> seventy grand a year. Honestly, bear in mind. Imagine it's such a part-time job. Yeah. You know what I mean? To get paid seventy grand a year. 
23 to, weekends to, a year, basically. Yeah, to carry the helmet, make sure water bottles full, yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> what a lot of them do is they sit there and they during the, any session and they're taking the, all the lap times down, every split, writing them down. But when the session finishes, within five minutes, you've got a sheet of all your splits and everybody else's. That's another one. It's not to do a job. So that guy's passed the helmet to the helmet guy. That's a non-job. You know, you've carried a water bowl. Whoosh, heavy. I tell you what, the rather have got arm pump if he just carries on water bowl. <laughs> and he's taken the splits. Well, when you finish the session, one of the people from the team walks in with the timesheet, as you know, at the end of the session going, there's your sheet. All oh, right, cheers. So basically, it's a farce. That said... <laughs> In a few years' time, if you see me as a, as a, a rider assistant, don't take the mick out. Hey, you, you've got the arms for it. You. you got the arms to hold all those water bottles and those helmets, that's for sure. I have said more. Please do not get your abs out on this podcast. Oh, I, I did that. Did you see that one with Scott Redding? It was so embarrassing. It was. It wasn't. That's. It's like your the mistakes if you when you make a when you're presenting. It wasn't as bad as as you think it is. It would be worse if I did it right now. Put it that way. Oh, it, was, it was bad. I was sat right here, and I just he got his abs out, and I thought, oh well, he went, let's see yours, and I thought they don't look too bad, you know. And then I realised that they did look really bad, and they're already out, and it's like, oh. For, for everyone listening, that was when Neil presented a Ducati course live on their Instagram account and doing a Q&A yeah. with Scott, wasn't it? Um, okay, I've got to pull you up on Ducati course. D- sorry, Please. Ducati Corsa. Corsa. Corsa, Corsa <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You can't say that to an actual Ducati legend sat right there well, as well, can you? No, see, I wouldn't know. I just said Ducati course, I think. I know, I knew that you'll disagree with me because I'm an absolute language geek. Like, I'm that person who, like slightly overdoes the kind of foreign name speaking in English oh, and I yeah. don't like when I do it but I still have a tendency towards it <laughs> no but you, you can't hate the fact that you want to do it correct you know yeah. we have we have such a good team at BT and there's certain things that pushes my buttons <laughs> and um, Gav correcting me Susie correcting me or Julian Ryder used to correct me those three have corrected me over the years <laughs> And it really winds me up. And instead of just thinking, oh, thanks. No, actually, thank you. You tell them how to say the person's name correct. That's great, actually. That makes doesn't make me look stupid. Thank you. No, my inner voice is like, yeah, all right, I'll say it. I want to say it. That's how, <laughs> That's how I think you should say it. You know? <laughs> that said, I can't help. But I, I, it's Ianoni to me. It's not Yanoni. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't say Yanoni. Or but to autocorrect, it's Ian one. It's, it's Ian only. Um, yeah. So I can't say Ian only. Well, it's not as bad as me when uh, the young young mate who's starting in um, Murder Three this year, Jason Depasquier. Uh, I I spent when he did a wild card last year. I spent a few goes trying to work out how to pronounce it, and still ended up saying Dupasquier. Right on the live, which just made me yeah. sound like a complete numpty. But yeah, we can. Well, we had it with. Like in year one, so 2013, it was Alex Aspargaro. And then <laughs> and then we sort of started calling him Alex. I kept calling him Alex. Everybody kept saying, it's Alex, it's Alex, it's Alex. <laughs> it's Alex. It's sort of easy. It's, I understand. Anyway, so then I started calling him Alex. Like under duress. Ooh. And then um, <laughs> and then Colin Edwards joined the team. Colin was his teammate. You know, Colin's mates with him. And uh, Colin calls him Alex. And I'm like, see? 
<laughs> and he calls him Alex, you know. So you don't have to, you know, you don't have to say it just like everybody else. Right at this point, though, I do want to ask just quickly because we'll, we'll, we've had you for enough time as well, and you've got to get to a family barbecue. So we'll ask you a couple more things for a little quick fire round. Not quite the same as yours, by the way. Um, but yeah. I've got to ask What's you. Your favorite drink. <laughs> well, whilst on the subject of pronunciations and everything. Pronunciations. Pronunciation. Are you kidding me? Uh, yeah, I know that. Okay. <laughs> Paddock English. I want to have another. I want to have your perspective on that. So the Paddock English, either the the language and the specific words that riders use in their debriefs, or even some of the accents which some of us Brits and I'm sure I've been guilty of it sometimes as well. Put on when they're speaking to Spaniards and Italians. What do you make of it? Do you have your own troubles with it? Oh my God. I hate it, and when I catch myself doing it, because I do, I'm like, why, why are you talking like Cal Crutchlow all of a sudden? I'll be, you know, yeah, for sure. Um, Cal's the worst, though, isn't it? Cal is the worst. Uh, well, Cal, and Jack Miller is also oh, guilty Jack, on sorry, occasion. Jack, yeah, Jack, <laughs> Jack's too. But I can yeah. understand it. There was a kid when, um, uh, I mean, I'd be absolutely, I'd laugh if he actually ends up being a MotoGP fan and listening to this somehow. But there was a kid on the Spanish <laughs> exchange who did the best sort of Spanish English, the Spanglish accent to the Spanish kids. And this, he would never speak the actual Spanish themselves, obviously against the whole point of an exchange. And he'd be like, uh, Jose, you want to dance here? And things like that. And whenever I hear the riders say that, I just think of this young lad called James from my school, and just think it, 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 that's what it transforms into, basically, isn't it? Just yeah. to be clear to everyone as well, we are not attacking the incredibly impressive level of English of non-native riders. Mm. We are attacking the native English speakers who, yes. for some reason, forget their own language and make another one up. But I mean, I've been guilty of it as well many times. I'm sure. <laughs> oh no, same. I mean, Spanglish now. Sometimes oh. you, I'll translate something for like the other parts of my job, and you read it, you're like, yeah, that's fine, and then wake up the next day and read it again and it just sounds like google did it yeah well, it's like you lose track of what, what's going on oh uh, hey so, someone's ringing me but can you still see me uh you've yeah. paused your video yeah but, uh, <laughs> you've paused very beautifully in this thing that you've had um but what i love about cal because i obviously we know why cal does it because mm. he's co- he's you know he's constantly around his team so he, you've just ended it's up helpful getting used to talking way. like same with jack but I love when we interview Cal. We're English, Cal. Come on, it's BT Sport. You can, and and I'll go. I was today, and I'll go. Oh shoot. Uh, today, in the moment, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult. You know, and you're like, oh my god, this is brilliant. It's like, come on, Cal. Let's get that because he's from Coventry. Like, come on, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a man in San Diego. No, I could be, and, and in fairness, yeah, I guess in in some ways it can actually almost help them in when they're actually having debriefs and things like that to try and speak a little bit. Well, perhaps it does. I don't know. I'm not in the team, yeah. but it's just trying to communicate clearly, isn't it? And mm, if yeah. you if you strip away all the stuff that really you don't need in a language, however much we're laughing at it now, you just got to make your point, haven't you? So they yeah. must just get so used to doing that. Yeah, well, I'll tell you um, what, one, one more it thing. Is, it is funny, definitely. <laughs> one thing for, for me and Fran, which you won't have, Neil, but and, uh, I'll say this before we move on to the to the um, quick fire round, and it makes, it makes us look a bit like wieners, really. Um, obviously working for Dorma <laughs> I'm trying not to swear here it's right if Neil swears but I'm trying not to um, but... I'm trying not to because I swear all through my podcast <laughs> it's like 
<laughs> exactly. Um, but obviously, me and Span, me and, me and Span, me and Fran working for Dorna, living in Spain. Uh, we have to speak a lot of Spanish. The worst thing is when we've been in Spain or on the road for a long time, and then I go back to England and I go into a coffee shop or go for breakfast or something like that, and the waitress comes over and says, "What can I get for you?" And I say, "Café con leche, por favor." And then what can I say then? What do I say? Because I can't say, sorry, yeah. I live in Spain. Because then she'll think, uh-huh. all right, knob. You know. I would just <laughs> use that word. Just, you, you just know they're thinking, knob. <laughs> what, what do you say? There's no way out of it to save yourself. Because you say, oh, sorry. You can't even say, oh, I'm just practicing my Spanish. Because you look even worse. Yeah. I've, d- I've done the same. I lived in America on and off for five years. Mm. And and I said, like, in front of my mates from Burnley, <laughs> I went, oh, have you got a new cell phone? And it was like, oh, <laughs> you absolute idiot. Oh, you no. You what a dog. <laughs> 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 the beats, you know, like. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a problem, isn't it? it really so is. I had to turn my mic off then so you didn't record one of my horrific giggle fits because it it's, it's genuinely a problem and once I go like I'll go and it'll be like a good 20 minutes before I can cope with the subject again so uh, right so uh, Neil we got let you go because you got uh, a family barbecue first but for, we do have a, a quick word association quick fire round because Kenwood right. uh, Kenwood Communications lovely sponsors uh, do, do uh, sponsors for this particular segment you've gone spanglish there again yeah see this well, is the I, problem is this Am I going to get ideas for Gasset out here for for mine and Gab's podcast? Well, you could do so because our because our quick fire rounds are either sort of uh, one of two option questions. It's word association or uh, whatever the other one is. I can't remember. Uh, we're thinking of getting fans questioning in anyways. But um, these just this is just word association. So obviously the first thing that pops to your head when we say this particular word, just say right, okay. it. On, Try and keep it on. clean. So I'll start, and then uh, Frank can follow on from that. So first one is Gavin. Well, I was just going to say Emmett. No. <laughs> I, I actually thought about this when I put that, and I was like, maybe we should say Gavin Emmett, but yeah, maybe, maybe that sounds too strange. Yeah. <laughs> We're hoping for something soulful, like friend, you know. Yeah. Brother in arms. Oh, so Gavin Emmett, I just think love. I oh. do. Oh. Okay. There you go. Right, next one. Daytona. Scary. Mm. Uh, the north of England for Void of Down. The best. Agree. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> yeah, northerners. <laughs> Ducati. Family. Marquez. Amazing. Quartararo. I was just going to say young. <laughs> <laughs> young. Okay, <laughs> Silverstone. <laughs> Great. British Superbikes. Amazing. Davizioso. Sound. Which is, my son's 12 years old, and like we never argue about anything. Well, we do, but you know what I mean, in general. Yeah. But when I say sound, he's, nev- he's like, oh, oh. <laughs> really? Why? Because he says why? it. Dad, don't say sound. It's so cool. Do not say sound. I'm like, oh no, really? Because we yeah. say, I say, I that say a lot. Yeah, because I've got oh um oh yeah, so, like Gavin. Yeah, Gavin sound. Oh, Dad, don't say sound. <laughs> oh no. 
Okay, oh, yeah. well, we've all learned something there. Yeah, I say sound or noise as well is the the other one. Obviously, with a hint of not being too serious, that I think that's actually making me cooler. But yeah, okay, well, sorry, uh, sorry to your son for yes. adding yeah. to that. Problem. Sorry, Taylor. Right, not that they will not be watching this. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, next one then. Uh, so back to word association rival. See, then my, my instant thought is I don't have one. Well, did you though? Who was? Um, well, I'd, I'd probably say Walker would be the one when I race. But like, I thought like if I think now, it's like I'm so happy not to have a rival. <laughs> you know, like, through your career, it's always stressful. You're always stressed. It's hard work, and you're like, yeah. no rival. Just collaboration nowadays. Bit a bit of a breather from it. Yeah. Um, right, what's the next one? Love. Please Victoria. say Gavin Emmett. I was going to say Victoria. Oh, oh. She hey, she's gone out of the house as well now. She's gone for a walk. Oh, oh fair. Okay. Impressive. Well, the other end of the spectrum, hate. Victoria. Hate. Nothing. Or as I would actually normally say it, commentary. Yeah, yeah, commentary. I, I, I was going to say, well, I can't get a word in. <laughs> nice. I love it. Okay, uh, Rossi. God. Freedom. Racing. Competition. I'm just laughing because it's uh, racing. <laughs> I know it's like. No, it's like, nice. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, it I'm makes not, good. I'm not very good at this, all right. No, it's fine. <laughs> there's, there's no good or bad in the word association. <laughs> if we asked you for your greatest story and you told us about some trip to Sainsbury's, then maybe there's a good or bad scale to bring into yeah. it. But we're okay, we're okay. Last right, one, final then. one then is winning. It's the best. Oh. Well, I'll say, I'll say one thing there, actually. When we did that, I think we put that with Danny Pedroza last week, didn't we? And he said peace. And I thought that was really nice as well. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, that was a good <laughs> one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Neil, uh, really appreciate you for uh, for taking the time to be with us. Um, Pleasure. Taking time out of your busy podcast schedule, really, to be honest. I yeah. mean, it's busy enough. Actually, we've got a, we've, we've sort of had a week off because we've got Winnie Colin Edwards here about, I don't know, about a week ago, and he's in the bag. And we did, obviously, Danilo Petrucci. So um, so I'm not, I don't know who we're going to do next, actually. But it's actually, because we've done 17, I think, now, or 18. And actually, it's a lot. Because, mm-hmm. as you know, it's an hour and a half every time you do one. And you yeah. do a bit of prep, don't you, a little bit, so... Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, we, we find it hard enough trying to do once per week, let alone you guys bumming out like two. Yeah, we're yeah. doing a couple of weeks, but it's, okay. it's not yeah. really hard work, but it's just like, it's almost you do run out of stuff to, to say, especially in lockdown. The scabbard, we'd always have to start with a chat, what have you been up to then, Neil? Well, shock horror, not much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's strange, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, everyone listening, make sure you go and uh, subscribe to Gas It Out as well. I think you can find it everywhere, can't you? It's it's not. Yeah, Gas It Out on um, 
It's the I- iTunes one. Yeah. And on, on iTunes, the iTunes one. Podbean. <laughs> I think Apple Podbean. All right, Dad. Gap sorts all that lot. Do you know what, Neil? <laughs> that is so sound. I really <laughs> like that. Sound. So sound. All right. Okay. Well, thank you very right. much for joining us. So, hope you enjoyed that episode of Lockdown Last on the Breaks. I think I yelled that a little bit loudly there. Sorry if I shocked you back uh, to life. I think that was a good natter with Neil. Yes, um, very, very, very all over the place, but good fun. <laughs> yeah, hopefully you felt like you were sort of having a uh, late afternoon summer beer rather than like you couldn't keep up and hated us for not asking the same question again absolutely but, yeah. <laughs> but uh, before of course before the episode started we did ask you guys what you think uh, what your perception is about the MotoGP paddock what do you think about how things have changed over the last 20 years or so so we want to hear your perspective of that so make sure you get in touch use the hashtag MotoGP podcast on Twitter if you're on there and uh, leave your comment on how you think the paddock's changed or the Grand Prix racing's changed how your hair's changed whatever uh or if not if you're watching on youtube sorry for our faces uh you can leave a comment <laughs> below but if you're going to leave a comment below uh make sure you give us a thumbs up as well that'd be muchly appreciated yeah um, also be kind because as you can see on a few of the other ones we will reply yeah yeah but well, we will no, also no, listen no exactly and feedback yeah, is appreciated <laughs> that's what you and i are trying to do a bit more isn't it it will try and get a bit more involved we've already sent out there was a reddit thread asking for some feedback so please do feel free to give us some constructive feedback we've got no problems with getting in touch with people and uh replying as well and uh but yeah try, try and be nice we're just we're just people as well um but next week fran <laughs> uh, as we mentioned at the top of the episode we're looking to switch up the guests uh it's going to be one of well a f- a couple of different people it could be, couldn't it? But one of them, one of the options, is a very, very well-known F1 legend, would you say? I I don't know what the F1 equivalent is of our official Hall of Fame, actually. I believe they do have one. But he's, he's not official, um, though, is he? But he's, he's definitely... But he is definitely a legend of the sport. Yeah, um, absolutely. There's quite a lot of in-jokes I could give here to uh, to give it away. We're running but out I time, won't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a very obvious one, uh, but I, I won't say that. But yeah, hopefully you'll uh, be hearing quite an interesting conversation with someone a little bit left field, but massive MotoGP fan and lots of different insights to give on that as well. There's, there's going to be whatever we, one thing we do promise is even if like some of the guests are changing from perhaps the usual roster that you're expecting from us, the chat about MotoGP is not going to change. That's and about bikes, thing. don't yeah, worry. Bikes, MotoGP, that's why it's a MotoGP podcast, that's why we're here. We've not gone rogue, we've not decided to take the product, make it a car show, <laughs> don't worry. Uh, but then also, yeah, we hopefully get some pretty different perspectives and a few different accents, I think, if all of our plans come together as they mm. are at the moment. Uh, prepare your ears. Yeah, quite. <laughs> well, without further ado, I guess we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>